We started a new sermon series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And what we said last week was that we are using this series to introduce and communicate vision. Uh, within the last, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we have uh, made it known that we have a new vision statement, a new mission statement, a new value statement. And what we're wanting to do with this series is to communicate all of that. Um, and the reason that we've chosen Ephesians is because uh, the vision is rooted in the book of Ephesians. Um, there are actually vision cards in the pew racks in front of you. And if you uh, take a look at one of those, you'll see that we include scripture references um, from Ephesians for these statements that we are using. So quick background for uh, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. This was a circular letter. Uh, we said this last week. And what is meant by that is that he did not write this letter for a particular congregation because of particular circumstances that were going on. Rather, he wrote this letter for it to be circulated among a network of churches. And what we already began to pick up on last week, and we will see it even more, is that Paul is really using this letter to more generally, on a big picture level, articulate the story of God and our role in that story as participants. Now, a few times in this letter, Paul mentions the fact that he is imprisoned. And what we said was that um, this most likely, it's usually referred to um, taken uh, to refer to Paul's imprisonment while he was in the city of Rome. Uh, so this would have been toward the end of his life, uh, the early 60s AD, and he would have been under house arrest. So that gives you a little bit of the idea for the context in which Paul is writing this letter uh, to tell the story of God, basically. Last week, um, what we got into was how God weaves us together in his story. There's this beautiful activity of God in the world to bring together people uh, from diverse stories and backgrounds and to shape them into a people that lives for his glory. And so we looked at both the identity and the purpose of these people, the church. And so that brings us to uh, verse 15 this morning of chapter 1. We're going to focus on verses 15 through 23. And um, here we have the Apostle Paul praying for these people in Ephesus. He writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's uh, pray to the Holy Spirit and ask for guidance as we look at this passage together. Holy Spirit, you are the great teacher. We pray that you would open your word to us. We pray that you would draw us into the grandness, into the bigness, into the beauty of your story, that our hearts might be stirred and that we might believe, maybe for the first time or all over again, that your story is indeed the best story of all. And we pray that as this happens, that you would open our eyes to see Jesus, that we might know him more, regardless of where we find ourselves in this moment in our spiritual journey. We pray in his name, amen. So as I said, as I introduced the scripture reading, the Apostle Paul is praying here for the Christians in Ephesus. And it's a meaty prayer, isn't it? It's a prayer of great content and substance. And I want to connect this to our new mission statement. I shared this with you last week, but here's how we uh, state our new mission. We equip people with diverse stories and backgrounds to embody God's story together in the everyday stuff of life. The reason that I reference this mission statement here at the beginning is because what we find the Apostle Paul doing here early on in this letter, and particularly in this prayer for the Ephesians, is that he is praying that they might embody the story, that they might embody God's story. And he prays for at least three things, that they might know, that they might become, and that they might do. So knowing, becoming, and doing, these are actually our new values. And so we're going to look, we're going to use these values as the lens to get into this passage and take a look at it. So let's begin with knowing. Knowing is one way that we embody the story. Now, before we uh, talk about what we mean by knowing, uh, I want to point out something to you, uh, somewhat similar to the passage of last week. Remember last week's passage, verses 3 through 14, if you were here? Uh, 202 words in the Greek, and in the Greek, it is one sentence. So a 202-word sentence. Imagine if you tried to write that for your English teacher. Um, probably would not go over well, would it, Amy? I see, you, I see you shaking your head no. Amy's all over that one. Well, as Paul gets to this very next section in the chapter, uh, his prayer, guess what? We have another sentence. This time, it's, uh, I believe, 169 words in the Greek. And I can't help but to think, I I said this last week um, with verses 3 through 14, and again here with this prayer, I can't help but to think that Paul just can't be held back. He doesn't have time for punctuation. He doesn't have time for pausing. This, This story is so grand. It's so good. It's so beautiful. And what he wants for this Ephesians Uh, believers, he feels so passionately at the core of who he is that he just goes off in this prayer. He just goes off, and he's not going to stop until he's done. He starts with a standard statement of thanksgiving. Now, um, if you're familiar with the Bible, especially the letters of the New Testament, there's nothing unusual about this. Uh, There actually wasn't anything unusual about this in the ancient Greek world. Greek letters commonly started with a prayer of thanksgiving to the gods. And so Paul begins here with thanksgiving to God, 
Um, but he does much more. He does much more. He goes much further. At the very beginning here, he says, for this reason. Now, when you see that statement, when you hear those words, what is meant to happen? Well, we're meant to go back to what came before. So Paul is indicating that there is a connection here to verses 3 through 14 and now verses 15 through 23. So for this reason, what is that reason? Everything that he said about who we are in Christ and our purpose in him. So in light of all of that, he goes on in this prayer. He says uh, that he has heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Now, Paul, um, previous to this, had spent three years in the city of Ephesus. Um, He had spent time with people in this church, but as time has gone by, he obviously doesn't know everyone now in the church, um, but he has received this message. He's getting updates, and he has heard specifically, it seems to be that these two specific things uh, are, are mentioned to Paul when he hears about the church in Ephesus, and that is their strong faith in the Lord Jesus, as well as their love toward all the saints. Now, verse 17, we begin to really get into the meat of this prayer. In verse 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What is Paul praying for here? What is he praying for? Well, we could say it this way. Paul is praying that God the Father would give the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation to these people. In other words, he's praying that they might have an increased experience of the Holy Spirit, that they might um, be brought deeper into the fullness of the Holy Spirit so that they might have greater insight into who God is and his ways in the world. And we see these two ideas um, throughout the beginning of this letter, knowing God, but also his ways. Because remember, um, in the verses 3 through 14, Paul talks about the mystery of God's will and how it has now been revealed and made known in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's a big deal for for Paul to make this announcement that we now get to know the very heart of God's plan for the world. And so it's knowledge of God and his ways. But let's, let's focus in on this idea of knowledge of him. Because here, that's what explicitly what he says. He prays for a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What does this mean? Basically, Paul is saying, I pray that you might know God better. Simply put, that's Paul's prayer. That they might know God more deeply. What does Paul mean by know? What do we mean by know? Um, as we articulate, articulate it as one of our values. Well, one of um, the commentators that I read on this passage uh, put it this way. This knowledge will include theological content. In other words, it includes teaching and learning about the teaching of the Bible. Um, He says it will include theological content to be sure, but in Scripture, knowing God is never just a matter of intellectual understanding. 
It is also deeply personal, relational, and experienced by a community. It includes experience, emotions, and intimate communication as well as right thinking. Now, this is really important for us um, because so often when we think about this concept of knowing, what do we immediately think of? We immediately think about knowing right information. And that's included. We we, want to be clear about that. Um, Right information, good theology, good teaching that comes from God's revelation of himself and his ways. We we want to work toward uh, getting that right and representing the teaching of Scripture accurately. But that is not only what Paul or the Bible has in mind. As As this person said that I quoted from, It's never just a matter of intellectual understanding. It's deeply personal, relational, and even communal. And so I I think that this is uh, good for us to think about in terms of our relationship with God. What is your relationship with God defined by? Is it only defined by your thinking about him and wanting to be right about the truth of Scripture? I mean, because we all know, you know, maybe from your own personal life, but also from experience, um, I've been around a lot of Christians who I might say their theology is actually really good and right in terms of what they say the Bible teaches, but they're terrible people. They could be terrible people. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. You, you know that too, don't you? We as Christians can claim to have good theology, and there's a sense in maybe which we do, again, that what we say reflects what is accurately taught in Scripture, but we can be awful people. Now, we're going to get there, but that's why we include as our values not just knowing, but becoming and doing as well. All of these are meant to, they, they belong together. They're inseparable, really. But our relationship with God can't simply be defined by knowing right things about him. It has to go beyond that so that we might actually intimately, relationally, personally know him, his person, his character. That's a good challenge for me. Um, uh, I sometimes live in my head. Uh, I'm an idea person, and you know, um, I'm thinking about those kinds of things all the time. And, you know, some, I, I can go throughout my, my life at times um, feeling like, oh yeah, I'm walking with God. But in reality, simply my walk with God in that season is defined by just simply knowing right information about him. And here's really the point of all of this, is that God desires more. God desires to be in relationship with you. Like, like, that's why we're making this point. That's why it's so important that God desires more for you. He desires that you not just know stuff. He actually desires that you know him relationally and that you're transformed by that. In verse 18, he, he uses the language of having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. And so now he, he's going beyond just simply knowing God personally, but now he's talking about knowing God's blessings. And what are God's blessings? Well, for Paul, so far in this letter, it's everything that he outlined in verses 3 through 14. All of that amazing theology, that amazing teaching, 
that we have been chosen by the Father, that we have been redeemed by the Son, and that we are kept by the Spirit. Uh, Paul's desire in this prayer is that they, just not, that they don't just know that stuff, but they actually experience it. And, and, and it, it, it shapes their identity of themselves, and it shapes how they actually live in the world among one another and others. Paul prays that you might know God more deeply. So knowing is something that Paul prays for here, but he also prays for becoming. Notice what he says just uh, after this, after talking about the eyes of their hearts being enlightened. He prays that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? You see, knowing in Scripture includes formation. It includes transformation. It includes change. When we know what is actually true about God and his ways in the world, it's not just simply that something that we stand at a distance from and say, yes, I give assent to those things. I believe them. We are meant to enter into them. It's this idea of being woven into the story. We're meant to experience it, to not just believe intellectually that we are loved and chosen by God, but to actually experience it and have it shape our perception of ourselves as we interact with the world around us. And that Jesus has redeemed us by his blood. You know, it's not just something that we give intellectual assent to and say, yes, I'm forgiven by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. What are the implications of the fact that you are forgiven? And how are you not living your life in alignment with that? I mean, this happens to me all the time. I, you know, am overwhelmed by guilt and shame at times, and I'm focused on my inability in certain areas of life, and I'm allowing that inability, my failure, my, my mess, to define my understanding of who I am. But Paul, uh, um, in this cosmic story that he's introducing us to, says at the heart of this story is that Jesus redeemed us by his blood. We are not defined by our failure. We're not defined by our past. We are defined by the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And so this isn't theoretical knowledge. It's experiential knowledge that leads to us becoming people of virtue and character. There, there's a, I think that there's a huge gap in the American church today. And this gap is um, really having right theology that we say, um, but then our lives not being characterized by virtue and moral beauty. That should not be so. That should not be the case. And, and what happens is, is that there becomes like a big disconnect, and we treat our theology, we treat our doctrine as something that's abstract, that, yes, I believe that, those things are true, but there's a disconnect when it comes to actually applying it to real life. And uh, issues around us in the world. It's all meant to go together. If we really have, I mean, there's a sense in which you, you would have to say that you do not have right theology if you're not being formed deeply in Christ, right? That, that's actually, I mean, maybe we need to stop saying that, that it's possible to have good and right theology without experiencing deep formation in Jesus because good and right theology has that in mind. It includes that. 
And so when we talk about wanting to have good and right theology, we also want to mean by that, that because of that, we are being deeply formed in Jesus, that our lives are becoming more and more beautiful. Now, it doesn't mean that we have it all together, right? It never means that. We are always a work in progress. We're always in process. But like that has to be a, a goal, right? That like the, the, the gospel's actually working on us and in us. It's making us more like Jesus. We're changing. We're being formed. We're experiencing transformation. But these three things that Paul mentions here, the hope to which we have been called, the, glor- the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, these first two are future-oriented. Paul has the future in mind, the hope to which he has called you, and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This word hope, let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, I probably wouldn't have made uh, a point about this, but this actually came up in our neighboring seminar uh, yesterday that Lauren Bales led, which was excellent, by the way. Um, Did we record? We we have it recorded. So, I, I mean... We all need to grow in becoming good neighbors. It's part of formation and becoming more like Jesus. So ask us for the audio, or maybe we'll post it and tell you where to find the the audio. It was very good. Um, But this word hope came up, and it came up in the context. Toward the end, we had a a panel. Um, And one of our panelists was Christian Willauer, who uh, was formerly the director of Westside Grows and is now... um, doing work in the area of housing around the city and also community projects such as um, park renovations. And a couple of the questions that were directed toward her um, had to do with discouragement and disappointment when the city's not following through on their promises in terms of maybe putting money into parks and that kind of thing. And Christian very beautifully talked about the nature of hope, that, that we have to believe that it's possible, right? Because if we don't, then we are not going to take action. We're going to give up. This is the function of hope in our lives. And Paul is directing us to the future. What is the future? Well, the future is captured back in verse 10 of chapter 1, where he says that basically God's plan for all things is to unite all things in Christ. In other words, God's mission, what he's up to in the world is he's making all things new. That's the end game, the end goal. All things made new. And so that is the hope to which we have been called. Specifically, the hope that Paul is talking about is the fact that these Ephesian believers, and for us as believers today, we have been woven into the story. That that goal, that destination is ours, and we are to live in light of that reality. That we can have confidence that God in Christ will make all things new, And so we can move forward and participate in that process in the everyday stuff of life. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is beautiful language here. And it it, it connects back to, again, verses 3 through 14. And really the truth here is that we belong to God. That we are his inheritance. We are his treasured possession, is how um, Scripture puts it in other places. He will inherit us as his people. How, does this, how do you hear that this morning? 
know, because we, we come in um, from a variety of places this morning. It's always the case as we gather for Sunday worship. Um, you know, and it's, it's interesting, like with church life, um, it's interesting how God is at work in our lives in different ways. Because some of you have come in and you are feeling especially close to God right now. Like you just feel uh, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Christ at work in you, um, forming you and all of that. But others of you have come and you're not so confident right now. Um, it could be because of um, uh, just your own actions in life. Maybe you would say, I've made a series of poor choices that have led me to this point. Or it could be that others around you have made very poor choices and have brought devastation and harm into your life. But here's the deal. Regardless of where we are in that and other places, the fact of the matter is, is that in Christ we belong. We said this last week. We have belonging in the story because of Christ. Our, our, our status in the story is not dependent on what we've done, what we haven't done, what others have done or haven't done to us. It is based on our faith in what Jesus has done for us. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. There's a lot of power language throughout this letter. And I mean, I'll just be admit, I'll admit to you, I don't always know what to do with it, um, especially like Ephesians 6, for example. When we get there, we'll, we'll see how Paul talks about spiritual warfare, and in other places, he talks about the powers in the heavenly realms or places, and um, he's already mentioned that a couple times here. And what he is uh, indicating for us is that in the context that this story, God's story is unfolding in a cosmic context. And there are spiritual realities, spiritual forces at play that we are not always in tune to. Now, one of the reasons it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this, to know what to do with it, um, some of it has to do with our situation and where we find ourselves in the West and in America. Um, we don't have a lot of room for the supernatural um, in terms of our thinking culturally. Um, we live, for the most part, in a culture that's very materialistic and, and physical, right? That what you see is what there is, it's what you get. But then you travel to other places of the world. Like, for example, I've been to West Africa a couple times, and there is nothing in my American worldview that can help me understand things that I hear and see in West Africa. And it's a reminder that there are spiritual realities and forces at play that we are not aware of. That there is a battle between good and evil unfolding on the stage of history. And when Paul said, when he prays that they may know the immeasurable greatness of his power, like he's doing that language thing again. He's like, I can't think of one word, so I'm going to use lots of words. Immeasurable, greatness, power. And he does the same thing again when he says, um, according to the working of his great might. He could have just said his might, but it's great might. So Paul, he just can't find the vocabulary to express all that he wants to express. But when he prays that they might know the immeasurable power, uh, greatness of his power toward us who believe, especially in the context of the city of Ephesus, where 
there was lots of spiritual warfare going on. And we'll, we'll, we'll touch on some of that as we go throughout this series. But Paul's point is this, is that in Christ you are secure. You are secure in the story. And you are going to face evil in very real ways on a daily basis as you go about trying to live out your faith in Jesus. Do not give up. Do not be discouraged. Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead, like that's where Paul takes this, is the power that is actually for you. It's for your benefit. And so God's plan will prevail. His story will come to its good and beautiful conclusion one day. And this isn't just something that is individualized. This is communal. Notice the language. We, we brought attention to this last week. The language here of we and us. This is true, yes, for us individually, but Paul actually has in mind the church collectively, the church as a whole. And what I said last week is that we have to retrain ourselves to read Scripture. This is so hard for us. And I've been guilty of it um, even already in early on in this letter because I keep coming back to my individualistic worldview and processing everything I'm reading through my lens, my faith, the fact that God has chosen me personally. And Remember, all of those things are true because what is true collectively of God's people is true for us on a personal and individual basis. But we can actually um, totally miss some of the point of Scripture by just jumping to the individual lens and forgetting the communal and corporate and collective lens that God has for us. These things are true for us together. You know what it's like, don't you? Um, when you experience something in life that is like really cool, like it's really good, and what happens when you're alone and you have that experience? Like what happens? Like it, I, I know what happens in my own life. My immediate thought is, oh, I wish I was not alone right now. I, I wish that somebody was here to take this in with me, to experience this. They might not even believe me. And they're not going, and this is always the hard part, right? You go back and you tell others about it. It's like, uh, no, I'm not finding the, I'm not using the right language or, uh, and you just finally say, you had to be there. You just had to have been there. We get to experience the realities uh, of God's story, the realities of God's calling on our lives together. And there's beauty in that. There's deeper meaning in that. And we get to learn more about it from our diverse perspectives and angles. And it, and it enhances us. It helps us in our faith. Togetherness is an important theme in Ephesians. Um, I, I can't remember how many times the word together is used in Ephesians. I'll look it up for next week's sermon, but it's a lot. Togetherness is a theme. And the Bible holds together this personal and communal lens at the same time. All right, let's talk about doing now as we finish this. So Paul prays that they might know. He prays that they might become in light of these realities, that it might form them and change them. But he also prays that in light of all of this, that they might do, that they might participate in the story. 
Remember last week, verse um, 11 especially, or actually not verse 11, um, verse 10, he, Paul talks about a plan for the fullness of time and how in that time, um, Christ being the center of the story was revealed. And specifically, that God's plan, as we said, is to remake the world in light of Christ and his coming. Now, skip back down to uh, our verses for this morning. Um, after he talks about the immeasurably great power um, that, rose, that, that raised Christ from the dead, he says um, that far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I want to show you something that's really cool that's going on here. If you look back at Ephesians 1, verse 3, I pointed this out last week, blessing at the introduction of this, this section is an important theme. It's something that's emphasized. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So three times the word blessed or blessing is used. We're meant to think back to the Old Testament. Remember, this, the, the Bible is a story. We, we sometimes think of it as all these disconnected books, but the Bible is a unified story. And we're meant to make these connections. If we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis 1.26, to Adam and Eve, it says, and God blessed them. And I could use other references, but for time, I'm going to use three. Uh, chapter 9, after the flood, it says, God blessed Noah. Chapter 12, when God calls Abraham to himself, he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Blessing is a theme throughout God's story. Now, Let's talk about this word filling, because this too is a theme throughout the story. And we're going to actually use those same three references to illustrate this. Genesis 1.28, all right? Right after God blesses Adam and Eve, it's, it tells us that God commanded them to be fruitful and to fill the earth. In Genesis 9, after God had blessed Noah. It says he commanded Noah to be fruitful and fill the earth. And then in chapter 12, uh, the call of Abraham, God tells Abraham that he will make of him a great nation. In other words, a family that's going to uh, fill the earth and bless those around them. The point is this, that we are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. Um, as I finish here, I want to go back. Last week, I made a comment um, and I said, we'll come back to that, and I forgot to come back to it. It happens sometimes, and I realize, oh, forgot to come back to it, but you probably weren't even thinking about it. Um, or were you? Probably not. Um, but what I said was, we struggle with this idea um, when we're talking about being chosen and election and predestination. And we struggle with the other side of it because, you know, obviously we can receive the fact and, and the glory and beauty of the fact that we are chosen by God. But then, understandably, we go to, well, what about those that might not be chosen? And that's a valid question, certainly, but it's actually not the question that God wants us to be 
um, worrying about or wrestling with. We don't know the mystery of God's plan, but here's how election works in the Bible. God chooses some so that his reach might be experienced more widely and further. God calls Abraham. He chooses Abraham. And what does he tell to Abraham? In my choosing of you, I am blessing you and setting you apart so that you might bless the world. Same thing with Noah, right? Same thing with Adam and Eve. He he creates them and says, "I, I bless you so that you might bless the world around you. God chooses so that others might come into his family over time. And so actually, it turns back on us. And that, uh, that purpose question as the church, how are more people going to know of, of Jesus and his work in the world? It's through us filling the spaces of our community and making Jesus known. This is how God works his plan. He chooses so that more might come into his family. And it's remarkable here. This remarkable reality. How is God going to fill the world with his presence? How is the presence of Jesus going to be made visible and tangible in the world? He's clear here. Through the church. Jesus' presence dwells with his people, and as his people go out into the world as they fill the spaces of their communities, speaking of good news and living light of good news, Jesus' presence begins to fill our diverse communities. Now, um, at the beginning of next week, we're going to say more concretely about that and what that looks like. But let me end with this uh, illustration. Um, I actually did not come across this until this week, so you maybe have heard about this, but Two years ago, um, there was a video that went viral. You know, it seems like every illustration or story is that anymore because things go viral so quickly. Um, But it was a video of a Kansas teenager named Tiffany Ruan uh, who had traveled to Italy with her chorus, her choir. And um, they were someplace in Italy, and she was looking down into a well, and she began to sing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah Chorus. And... It's, I mean, you'll have to watch the video on YouTube. Um, it is just very moving and beautiful because her, her voice fills the space of that well. And it echoes out so that those who are all standing around the well uh, feel the impact of it. They hear it. They're taking it in and they're, they're blessed by it. And not only those who are standing around the well with her, but the video has touched many people Um, thousands of people as it's gone viral. Well, this gives us an idea of God's purpose in the world. His purpose is that we might speak and act as the very presence of Christ in our diverse communities so that those around us might be touched, that they might be moved, that they might be awakened by the Holy Spirit because of the beauty of the good news that we speak and the the beauty of the good news that we live out. Let's pray. Father, it's a lot to take in, this purpose, this mission of yours in the world. Uh, It's it's hard at times to believe that that this is actually what you're doing, and it's even harder to believe that you have chosen to use people like us to fill our communities with the presence of Jesus. 
We pray that you would help us as a church to do that, to fill our city, to fill our region, to fill our neighborhoods with the presence of Jesus so that people might tangibly experience him and come to know that the good news is true, that it's good and that it's beautiful. Help us to know your story, Father. Help us to become in light of us and help us to do, to actually obey in light of these realities so that we might bring glory to you throughout the world. Pray in Christ's name, amen.